Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. And I have the privilege to preach to you this morning the book of Zechariah. If you're a visitor with us this morning, welcome to KCC. We're, we're glad that you're here. And one of the things you should know about us is we love to preach the Bible. We love to hear from God and his word. We believe that he has something to say to us. We believe he, his word is sufficient for our life and godliness. And so we are coming to him in this word this morning. And sometimes we get so excited, we just decide, let's preach an entire book in one morning. So that's what I'm going to do. And this summer, if you've been with us, we've been preaching through the minor prophets. When we say minor prophets, we don't mean that they're any less valuable, that they're any less authoritative. We just mean that they're shorter in length, except this one this morning. Today, Zechariah is 14 chapters that we can't look at all of it, but 14 chapters. There are eight visions from chapters one through chapter six. There's a break in chapter seven and eight about fasting and questions on that and then feasting. And then nine through 14, you've got oracles and some more visions. Tons of symbols, tons of imagery. And it's a little hard to understand, but I believe that this book has hope for us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him this morning for his help. Father, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. Show us our true selves. Show us your glory in Christ. Lord, guard my mouth from error and help me to proclaim the excellencies of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It'll all be worth it on that day. I often hear couples when they are talking about wedding planning or they're getting ready for that day. They, they, there's a lot of exciting things that go on, but usually something happens in the, the planning, the preparation process, some kind of difficulty that comes up. Whether you disagree about what you're going to buy or you cut Annie from your list. And now, of course, mom's upset because she's your uncle's you know, third cousin's mom's best friend. And so she, of course, has to be there because why not? And so you hear people say these things. And then usually at the end of a conversation, you might hear someone say, well, it'll be all worth it on that day. Or it will be worth it because you'll be married. You'll, you'll get to end that day as one. So all the planning, all the diligence, the day that all the things that make it worth it for that day they, they encourage you, they empower you because you look ahead, you look to that day, you envision that day. And so it keeps you hopeful, it keeps you going. And so it is in the Christian life. We envision a day ahead that keeps us going in the present, the right now. But sometimes we get lost in the details and we forget where we're going. We forget the goal. We forget where this is all heading. Sometimes we get tired Anxious, indifferent, we lose hope. We forget. And we need our hope restored. We need to be reminded. So my question this morning to you is, have you lost sight of the end? Where this is all going? Where we're headed? There are times in my life where things seem dry, difficult. My Bible study feels distracted. My prayers feel weak. My relationship with God seems distant. And my desire is that he would draw near to me, that I would feel his closeness, his nearness. That's 
One of the reasons we sang, press in your presence. We desire that. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning because you are in that place. Or maybe you've just come out of that place. Or maybe you sense yourself going into that place. Maybe this is just another Sunday to you. Singing songs, you hear a sermon, you figure out lunch, you do it all again. Week by week, work has become monotonous. It just was once maybe a passionate desire for you. has just now become a duty. And so you wake up, you scroll the same apps, you read the same news, you do the same thing over and over, and it just feels like, what am I doing? What is God doing? And I wonder, have you lost sight of the end? You know, why are you here this morning? Did you come to find hope? Or is this just another routine? See, we have this fundamental issue in our hearts where sin robs us of Hope, sin causes us to forget everyone at some point in their lives. If you've been a Christian long enough, you, you know what I'm talking about. You've experienced this. And in particular, you feel it in relationships, in your relationship with God. We get distracted, we get tired, and we need our hope restored. God does not leave the end in question. He has not left that for question. You may not know your next step, but if you're in Christ, I know your final one. And this morning, I want to exhort you in two primary ways from the book of Zechariah to give you hope, to restore your hope from God. God give you hope to trust in the God who restores And to trust in the God who will return to you. One of the main purposes of Zechariah is to motivate the people of God at this time to rebuild the temple. Where the presence of God would dwell. So Zechariah, instead of telling them to do certain things, he shows them. God gives him these visions to say, show them what's ahead. Show them what is coming. This temple will be rebuilt. The presence of God will come back. The people will be restored. And this book is filled with promises of hope. So if God seems distant, if you've grown cold, if you're just going through the motions, or you don't even know God, there is hope for you. Now, if you're new to the Bible, one of the things you should know is how important the temple is to Israel. That's what we're going to look at through the book of Zechariah. And the temple is so important to Israel because it meant the blessing that God would bring and with him, he would bring power and peace, purity, protection, provision. And Israel would be a testimony to the nations about what God is like, that he was in their midst and they would be unlike anyone else. Not because of them, but because of him. Like many efforts over time, Israel had grown cold, tired, distracted, unmotivated, and lost sight of their God. They question, what what are we doing here? They just stopped building the temple. And so Zechariah is encouraging them on, build the temple again because there's something ahead. So we arrive here in chapter 1. Verse 3, he says to them, as we just read, Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. 
this command here has to be understood in the context of the relationship God has with Israel. If you don't get that, you'll miss the point. God has made a covenant with Israel long ago. He has set his care and affection on them long ago. His love is so great that in Zechariah 2.8, we would read, He who touches Israel touches the apple of his eye. And again in Zechariah 10.3, he will say the Lord cares for his flock, the house of Judah. God cares about his people. He has set a particular affection on them. But what about Israel would cause God to say this? What could be so lovely about Israel? I mean, if they were so great, then why do we see in chapter 1 verse 4, this warning for them to not be like their fathers who did not hear or pay attention? Or in chapter 7 verse 11, that the people of God refused to pay attention, turned away, stopped their ears from hearing God. What could be so lovely about Israel? And the answer, church, has nothing to do with them. And everything to do with their God. So it is with us, church. What makes us lovely is not us. What makes us lovely is our Savior. He is good and beautiful. So why would Israel turn from this God? What could prompt them to lose sight? Well, they have the same sin problem we have. They forget and they lose hope. They forget what God has told them he would do. So when God says, return to me, God is being kind to them. This isn't some desperate attempt for God to gain followers. I mean, the fact that he says, return to me. I mean, have you thought about who they're returning to? A God who is holy and just and kind and all-knowing. And has been gracious to them. He has protected them from nations. He has blessed them with provision. And I wonder if you see this return to God as some angry, disappointed father. Like repentance in your life is like you're coming back to a God who is disappointed with you, angry with you. As if returning to him is some form of discipline. Or maybe it means nothing to you. Maybe returning to God doesn't have any bearing on your life. And if God, if, if this seems dull and boring, then maybe it is because you don't know the God you're coming back to. And so hear this call to come to him. I've said this before, church, but repentance is not primarily about what you turn from, but who you turn to. Repentance is not primarily about what you turn from, but who you turn to. And who we turn to, church, is lovely. If you're hiding in your sin, if you've never trusted in God through Christ, then I am sure it's because you don't know who you're coming to. But this doesn't mean our God is some pushover. That doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. We don't do whatever we want and presume, oh, he'll just forgive us. There are consequences for sin. The Lord, in fact, disciplines those he loves. So there are consequences for Israel that he would kick them out of their land for their good. That he would withdraw from them. And so in Zechariah, things look pretty bleak. A once powerful nation is now a joke. So much so that Zechariah chapter 8, 13, he would, say, he would say, and as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, 
No one wanted to be Israel. But God offers the gift of turning back to him. And so they do in chapter 1 verse 6. We hear this these phrase, so they repented. So they did repent. They came back to God. And following the, these, this section here from verses 1 through 6 of chapter 1, we see this set of visions. We see our first vision in chapter 1, verses 7 through 17. This power of nations over Israel. And it's shown in these four horses that go out and they have conquered Israel. That their land has been taken from them. Their temple has been destroyed. The nations are at peace. But God is not. And in vision 2, there in verses 18 through 21, we see four horns that represent this destruction that these nations have caused Israel. But there is hope because there's these four craftsmen who are coming to destroy those people, destroy the horns that have come up against Israel. And so God is going to do something about it. And because he's going to give them hope about what he's going to do, it gives them hope in the, in the present of what the future holds. So what are the people supposed to do now? Well, it's interesting because there aren't many commands that Zechariah gives to the people. Zechariah doesn't tell them to do much of anything. Rather, he shows them visions that God's presence will once restore them and bring blessing of power, peace, purity, protection, provision. In chapters 2 through 6, we see the rest of these visions. And Zechariah had all eight in one night. Now, if I, if I had eight visions in one night like this, I'd go to counseling the next day. He just keeps going. So in chapter 2, God is going to bring Israel back to their land. And then it says he's going to measure them and they're, they're going to be without borders. Because of how many people will inhabit Jerusalem again. In chapter 3, we see a high priest who has filthy clothes and he takes those off and puts on new garments. In chapter 4, God gives his word and his spirit and says, it's not by strength or by might you're going to rebuild the temple, it's by my spirit. And in chapter 5, we see this flying scroll signifying or showing that God is purifying his people of wickedness and it will be taken out of the land. God's presence is coming. Church, what does this all mean? What's, what's with all the visions? Well, it means at least one thing. That where there is a promise of his presence, there is hope. Return to me and I will return to you. So they did. Now what does God do? Exactly what he says he will. Church, you can trust some things in life. I know that there's... An assurance of some things you can trust in life. But God's word is something that we can bank everything on. When God says he's going to do something, we can trust it like none other. People make vows on a wedding day. That's all by God's help that they will keep them. But God's word needs no help. When he says, I will return to you, I'm going to return to you. He means it. I counted roughly nine times. He says that he will return to them and dwell with them in Zechariah 1.3. Here you have it, the, the first part there that we looked at. I will return to you. He says it again, chapter 1.16. I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. Chapter 2, verse 11. I will dwell in your midst. Chapter 8, verse 3. 
Thus says the Lord, I've returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So is there any doubt that God's presence is going to come back and he will restore his people? I don't know how you can have any doubt in that. I mean, and it's motivating, is it not? It motivates them in the present of this future hope. He's coming back. Get to work. Build the temple. He's returning. And so you come to him and you will be restored. In chapter 8 of Zechariah, we hear God say these words. Verses 14 through 17. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, consequences for sin, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Did you see that, church? There in verse 15, God has purposed to bring good to his people. What is that good? What is the good that God's going to bring to his people? Well, it may be protection, it may be provision, but ultimately it is himself. It's the fact that his presence is going to come back. That's the good he intends to do to Israel. Because where he is, they get restored. They get provision. They get peace. So God restores them by coming to them. Return to me and I will return to you. Church, this phrase seems a little backwards for us. Right? It seems like a conditional statement. Like, oh, if, if I don't come to him, he's not going to come to me. I thought the only reason we turn to God is because he first came to us. That's true. God first chose Israel, like I said, and saved them long before now, gave them commands to obey, consequences if they didn't. And here is God keeping his promise, I will return to you. None of this makes them any less his people. His covenant wasn't broken just because he kicked them out of their land and withdrew from them. They are still his people. And so we should hear this turning to God. If you are in Christ, this turning to God is a way to examine your own heart. This plea to come back to him. Why am I here? Why all these years have I come to church? Do I read my Bible? Do I pray? Do I do all these things? Do I enjoy God? Am I here to worship God or just his gifts? And this is why the church gathering is so important, is it not? Every week we are coming back to be turned to the God who has come to us. And that's restorative. This is the refrain of most of the prophets, if you haven't gotten this by now. Them telling the people over and over again, keep coming back to me. Go back to your God. Go back to God. You keep going this way, go back. And so he says, return to me. King's Cross, if you've trusted in Christ, you are his and he is yours. And I've heard some of you talk to me when I ask you about your relationship with God. You talk about it in the experiential 
presence of God. We have a phrase, we call it the experiential presence of God. In the Christian life, when we talk about God, we don't say, how's your relationship with God? And you say, well, he's everywhere. He's perfect. No, usually, you talk about your relationship with God in distance terms. Do you not? I say, how's your relationship with God? Well, he seems near or he seems far. And God's presence isn't some kind of magic formula that we can just conjure up. We don't just dim the lights and turn on loud music and boom, call it down. But, but neither do we get God's presence through lifeless routine. Neither do we know the nearness of God through just going through the motions. That's actually what God rebukes Israel of in chapter 7. He says, when you fasted all those years, have you been fasting for me? See, Sunday morning isn't just something we do. Reading our Bibles isn't just something we do. Praying to God isn't just something we do. These are all means to encounter the living God. And he's concerned with our heart's motivation to do those things. And we wonder, why does God seem so far? How do I draw near? Well, let me offer some reasons why that may be. It may be that you don't know him. That might be why God is far from you. you you've never actually come to Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're, you're exploring the, the Christian faith, you can be near God. Because he has come near to you in the face of Jesus. Secondly, it could be that you're living in rebellion. It could be that you're hiding your sin. It could be that you're trying to live one foot in, one foot out. You have said, I'll turn from other sins, but this one, God, you can't have. That one's too good. Maybe you suffer from spiritual pride. You compare yourself to others. I'm doing so well. I've fasted for these 70 years. Okay, cool. Was it for, for God? Or maybe you have not grabbed hold of the means of grace to encounter him. You don't come to the Lord's word or regularly to him in prayer. God desires your heart. And he has given you means to draw near to him. You will not experience the Lord's nearness in your life, hiding your sin. You will not experience his nearness, keeping one foot in and one foot out. You will not experience his nearness, forsaking the means of grace. But in all these things, again, we don't just do them because. We do them because we're coming to a person. When you read your Bible, it's, it's okay to ask, what do I need to do? That's a good question. But another question is, who is God like? And what has he done? When you're coming to the Lord in prayer, it is one thing to ask God to help you do certain things. Lord, please help me do this. Please help me do that. Keep doing that. But it is, it is also something you need to do in praising God in your prayer. Just communing with him, thanking him, praising him, enjoying him. So we come to him. We come to him to find hope 
to be restored. And we trust in the God who will return. Outside of the Psalms, Zechariah is the most referenced book in the last days of Jesus' life leading up to his death. The rest of Zechariah tells us about God coming. And from chapters 9 through 14, the book talks about this future king and shepherd. And what God is going to do through him. This glorious king would come to us. And we read in chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice, O greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. It is kind of humorous, right? The king who delivers Israel is going to come on a donkey. If you've ever seen the classic movie Braveheart, Mel Gibson plays this character, William Wallace, a Scottish patriot who revolted against England because they had killed someone he loved. And so he leads an army to fight against them. There's this iconic scene where he's mounted on a horse and he's motivating the people and he's telling them to fight for freedom. It's really passionate. You should, you should watch it if, if you haven't. But imagine this scene, instead of a horse, he's on a donkey. They could hardly take him serious. I mean, you want to get our freedom by that? Okay. I mean, it's going to take you a while to get there, maybe. So how is this king supposed to deliver Israel to freedom and speak peace to the nations and to restore his people? And this is the king that comes on a donkey. Well, it isn't by mounting a horse or destroying the nations. Rather, this king would restore Israel in coming to them and becoming something for them. In chapter 12, if you look at Zechariah, your heading may say, the Lord will give salvation. But I want you to skip to verse 10. And your subheading there, may say, him whom they have pierced. See, grace and mercy comes to Israel through them looking on him whom they have pierced. Someone pointed out to me that this is interesting because the phrase is future. They will look and past, pierced. On him they pierced. They will look again on him they pierced. The phrase insinuates death, but that he did not stay dead. His piercing may kill him, but not conquer him. In John 1, we are told that Jesus has come to dwell with us. John chapter 1 talks about Jesus coming down and he, he dwelling among us. God's presence has become so near that he has taken on flesh. You want to look at the presence of God. You want to know the presence of God in bodily form. You look at Jesus. Throughout his life, he continually will say the kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. God has come down to us. This is why Christmas is so amazing to us. Because we can never make it to him. We can never truly draw close unless he first drew near to us. I mean, how much closer can you get than the God-man coming to you and becoming like you? 
If you remember, I said the temple is the presence of God for Israel. The followers of Jesus all knew that he was truly God. And even Jesus himself has said he is God. But he also speaks of himself this way in John chapter 2 verse 19. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Speaking of himself. So no longer will we worship in a temple built by hands. Jesus does something unique. How do we draw near? How are we restored? How's Israel restored? At the end of Jesus' life, he hangs on the cross to die. And just before his death, something happens to the temple. A curtain that formerly were separating God from man is ripped in two. Jesus has sacrificed himself finally to draw near. And that many could come to him. He has restored us to himself through his sacrifice. And after he died in the book of John, we hear these words in chapter 19, verse 37. They will look on him whom they have pierced. God has fulfilled his word. Do you feel far from God? Are you just going through the motions? Do you think your sin is too great? Does God seem like he's too far? You can come to Jesus. He is good and beautiful and he has come to you. Come to him while there is hope. And he will restore you. But this is not the end. There is something more glorious coming. I asked at the beginning if you have lost sight of the end. You won't make it by your own strength or by lifeless routine. You won't make it by seeking the next experiential high. I mentioned a few reasons why we might not experience the nearness of the Lord now. Maybe we haven't come to Christ. Maybe we're hiding in our sin. Maybe we're not pursuing the means of grace. But some of you say, I'm doing those things. I'm not hiding in sin. I'm pursuing the means of grace. I'm here. I don't feel like I'm going through the motions. But God still seems distant. Well, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, there is a vision much like Zechariah shows the people. Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be them, to them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It'll all be worth it on that day. Church, it may be what you long for, what you desire in your experience with God, in doing all the things. I am drawing near through the means of grace. I'm not hiding my sin. It may be that something better awaits you. That what you long for in this nearness of the Lord, you're like, he feels so far from me. It may be that heaven, you have replaced 
it and said, oh, let's make this heaven. This isn't heaven. This is not the end. And so we continue to move forward. We continue to listen to him. We continue, as Zechariah says, loving the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the poor, and listening to God. We continue on, and we do it because we look ahead. We have looked on him whom we have pierced, and we look ahead to a future day when all sin is gone, joy restored. And that's not because there's anything lovely in us. But it is because our Savior. And he is coming back to dwell forever. So as much as people want to call heaven down. This ain't it. This ain't it. If this is all it is. That's sad. I, I want more. And more is coming. Your job. This isn't, this isn't the end. The difficulties in your marriage. Not the end. Parenting, not the end. Your next step, I don't know it, but I know your final one. And I know his presence will bring peace and power and purity and protection and provision. No enemies, no sin, no worries. He will be our source for everything good. How beautiful is that? There is a reason why a lot of Afro-spiritual hymns that we have talk a lot about heaven. Life on earth seemed dim. But they had hope that could not be taken. They knew something better was coming. So they have songs like, Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. They believed it. Do you? Let me close with the words of Zechariah 9, verses 16 through 17. And this gripped me as I read it. It says, On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. They shine because of his goodness and his beauty. Church, that is why we shine. Anything lovely about us is because our Savior. He is good and beautiful. So come to him. He will restore you. And know that he is coming back to get you. Trust in him to return to you. Let's pray.